I'm Kelsey Ryder. I'm Natalia Raymond. And this is Angelinos in Training, a podcast for people curious about Los Angeles by people who live in Los Angeles. So whether you're moving here, new to the area, or just want to better understand LA, we're here to help you navigate the city of angels. Hello and welcome back to Angelinos in Training, the podcast that tells you about Los Angeles from people who are living in Los Angeles. I'm Kelsey and Natalia is here as well. And today she is going to teach me some more Hollywood history, specifically about the silent film era. Yes, Kelsey, have you ever seen a silent film? I want to say I have. I mean, yeah, I have to have seen one, but I don't know if I've seen one in its entirety because I know there's so many different lengths depending on like exactly when they were coming out. But I feel like, yeah, I've seen a couple for sure, but I couldn't like rattle them off to you or anything. Yeah. You know, most people haven't. And that's because- To the moon and back. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I know for sure I've seen that whole one. (laughs) Okay. You've seen To the Moon and Back. What a romantic title. Now, um- (laughs) Not that many people have seen silent movies these days, you know, not just because they're old, but also because very, very few of them are even around anymore. Right. Actually, over over 70%, it's estimated about 75% of movies from the silent film era are lost, as in it's don't so exist anymore. Yeah. It's so sad. Yeah. And it was an era that was so influential on so much filmmaking and that really set the standard for so many uh, different things about how films are made even today. And it's it's super unappreciated, but we're going to dive yeah. into it. Well, everybody has to start somewhere and the entire industry seemed to kind of start here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a it was a very short period of time, uh, but extremely influential. And for this episode, we're going to mostly focus on probably about 1915 to 1927. So okay. that's a that's a very, very short amount of time. If a, if a silent film was made in 1915, it would be uh, starting middle school by the time the talkies came around. So really not <laughs> that true. old at all. But, that's true. Um, it was it was a really interesting time, and actually, a lot of the stars of the silent film era are still um, very much in public relevance today. But we're going to dive into it. We're going to learn a little bit about it. This isn't really the era of Hollywood history that I think about a lot when I think of old Hollywood. But there's actually yeah. a lot of interesting things that happened and a lot of scandal. I believe it. I'm so excited for the scandal. Scandal. And actually, I'm going to correct myself. The silent film I was thinking of is A Trip to the Moon or in the original French, Le Voyage dans la Lune. Ah. So that's what I was thinking of. Not to the moon and back. That's a novel of a different name. Anyway. There were moons in both of them. All moons. So, um. We're going to learn a little bit about silent movies, their history with Hollywood, and some of the stars of the era. So I did some research. Kelsey doesn't know what I'm going to talk about, so all of her reactions will be genuine. Genuine. I try to have genuine reactions to life Mm -hmm. and in general. 
Yes. But even here on this podcast, listeners, mm-hmm. genuine reactions. That's our promise to you. Yes. So <laughs> silent movies can be difficult to enjoy or access today as, uh, you know, the time that they were very popular was a long time ago. It was, you know, over over 100 years ago for some of these movies. Yeah. And there's also so few of them available because, like I mentioned, um, a lot of them, you know, haven't really survived. And a lot of them haven't really been well-preserved either. But you know what? If you want to watch some early silent movies, a lot of them are on YouTube. Oh, that's see, there's one good thing the internet has done for us. Yes. Some preservation <laughs> of the reason why, like the reason that YouTube even exists has some of the sources of yeah, YouTube, first inspiration. YouTube actually has the entirety of a lot of um, early silent movies on uh, their website for free. So if you oh. really, really want to have a cozy movie night of a silent film, you can check out YouTube. That's one uh, possible source. Now, um, one of the reasons why so many of the films are lost is because the nitrate film that they were printed on was actually extremely flammable and extremely unstable. And there were actually a number of fires that happened in the Hollywood area that destroyed a lot of the films. Uh, one of them was in 1937 at Fox, and another was mm-hmm. in 1965 at MGM. So both of those vault fires, you know, just destroyed so much film history. <laughs> yeah, I. that's one notorious, like, fact about old film is that it was so so flammable i did know about that and i knew about those fires too but it's still Mm -hmm. a huge bummer it's just kind of interesting because you wonder i mean and when people are making these in this time period they might not even be considering like this is something people are gonna want to preserve for future generations Mm -hmm. like people don't know they're just inventing stuff yeah But what's kind of interesting, though, is a lot of people have heard about how a lot of them were destroyed in fires. But what a lot of people haven't heard about is that many of the films of that period were thrown out on purpose. Oh. Deliberately destroyed. I did not know that. Because people felt like they didn't need them anymore or they felt like it would cost too much money to preserve them. So a lot of people were constantly doing out with the old, in with the new And there were just so many films being produced during that era, especially because a lot of them were shorts, Mm -hmm. that it would take up a lot of space to store them all. That's true. In fact, a lot of Nickelodeon theaters, they would exhibit as many as 20 productions in a week. Oh, wow. And then just have new ones come in the next week. So if you think about all of those film reels, you're going to need huge, huge warehouses to store them all. Yeah. Yeah. It's not not tiny little like flash thumb drives. That makes sense. Because of that, a lot of the films of the era just don't exist anymore. We can't watch them. But another reason a lot of people don't watch them is because, let's be honest, a lot of people think they're weird. I mean, <laughs> Cassie, when you, when you watch a silent film, are you entertained? It depends on the film, but I think that... I'm going to be more entertained than the average person because I have a passion for film and film mm-hmm. history. I think the average person is going to be like, what is the point of this? Like, it's not even funny. And that's just true of any art medium. Like, it's mm-hmm. tastes change and 
super weird to watch a silent film. It feels very disjointed because mm-hmm. you have to watch people move their mouths and then like a card screen comes up or there's not even a card screen sometimes, you know? Yeah, yeah. And those cards that would come up that would have just a choice bit of dialogue or just a little bit of the plot, those are off-putting to us today. But those were yeah. very essential back then for people to be able to follow the story. But would you say that the acting style is one of the things that you find off-putting? For sure. For Mm -hmm. sure. It's very, very big because they're trying to transfer vaudeville to screen or theater to screen. Mm -hmm. And it's not how people act these days at all when you're trying to go for a realistic kind of mood or tone. Yeah, exactly. It it almost feels sometimes more like a, a mime carich- caricature kind of thing in yeah. some of the situations. Yeah. And like you said, a lot of these performers were vaudeville performers who had to play mm-hmm. out to a huge audience when they were on stage. And then when they're in front of the camera, you know, it just amplifies everything. And yeah. <laughs> we're used to such a natural acting style these days in most productions. So it can just seem, you know, weird to us. But that was just the way that people acted on screen back then. So you kind of have to take it as like a product of its time. It's representing a different era. Plus some some might feel like slowed down or sped up too, which can just feel a little weird. Right. Well, yeah. They didn't necessarily have the frame rate. Right. I mean, I don't, mm-hmm. I hope I'm not stepping on what you're about to tell us. But yeah, I mean, like all that hand cranking isn't always consistent. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, some of them have like weird, super wide shots and things like that that just yeah. kind of look odd. But during this era, people became so experimental with the way that mm-hmm. they shot uh, different projects. And, you know, as they started using more close ups and um, other methods that, you know, kind of brought us closer to the actor, making it, mm-hmm. you know, feel less like you're watching theater, the acting style, you know, had to change. Right. Well, and I wonder how long that took them to be like, this feels creepy. <laughs> oh, there were reports of it even in the 19-teens of um, audiences uh, demanding a more natural acting style. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh. Which I find quite interesting because a lot of people don't really credit the emergence of a more natural style to until maybe like Marlon Brando. But yeah. people were definitely progressing towards that area even way before Brando. Well, and how are you going to know unless you are showing it to audiences? Mm-hmm. That's why in the industry we have table reads slash screening slash focus groups mm-hmm. doesn't always translate from your brain to the screen the same way that the audience receives it so that's really interesting huh. yeah would you consider silent films primitive there's definitely things i notice that seem very awkward and green mm-hmm. so i guess you could describe it that way sure yeah i feel like that's a a common thing that a lot of people think when they mm-hmm. watch a lot of these silent films is they're like, this just, it looks so old. Yeah, for sure. They didn't know what they're doing. But what's interesting is actually a lot of these silent films were not as as primitive or as simple as a lot of people give them credit for. One mm-hmm. thing I found out that I was very surprised by is, Kelsey, when you think about silent films, what do you imagine them looking like? What colors do you imagine They're definitely... Being? 
black and white. Mm-hmm. Like pretty much all silent films I can think of are in black and white that I've seen. Well, a fascinating thing. Color was a lot more prevalent in silent films than a lot of people realize. In fact, color was more prevalent in the silent film era than it was for even the first few decades of sound films. Oh. And that was in several different methods. A lot of films would do some kind of film tinting or toning Mm -hmm. where they would give a red tint, a blue tint, something like that. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of films also did was they would hand color frames. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. I have heard of that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I didn't know about the tinting, though. And actually, by the early 1920s, about 80% of movies had some sort of color. Wow. And then even uh, cinema color and technicolor were already starting around this time. I didn't know that. Which is really weird to think about. It is, yeah. What's also interesting, too, is when you think of silent films... What do you imagine hearing while you're watching them? Definitely some kind of piano music, mm-hmm. maybe kind of like a Wurlitzer organy feel, depending mm-hmm. on what the film is. And I, my film history dreams, it's like I picture myself walking into an old theater. Well, I guess it's not old. It's a modern theater at this time. There's a man that comes out before the movie starts and puts up his music and with a piano on stage plays along the music live as I'm watching the film, Mm -hmm. which I know was super common at that time. But that's just kind of my romanticized version of watching a silent film. Yeah, yeah. And that is very common to how it was. And what was interesting was often your sound experience was going to be very different depending on where you watch the film. Yeah, that's so interesting. (laughs) Because a lot of these early films... They either would allow the pianist to improvise or the pianist Mm -hmm. would just kind of get to choose their own music. (laughs) You might be at some little theater where the pianist is just improvising and it doesn't go with the movie at all. Or you might be in another (laughs) theater where it's a pianist who's really good at matching the mood of what's on screen. Mm -hmm. Or even in uh, some of the fancier ones, you know, they'd have an organist. Yeah, yeah. And in some theaters, those organs that they had for the movie would even have Foley sounds like uh, pistols or horse hooves or things like that. That's so cool. In a lot of the really fancy movie theaters in big cities... Part Mm -hmm. of their appeal to the rich was they would even have orchestras. Oh, man. So imagine seeing the same movie in like a little movie house where you just have the little rinky-dink piano player improvising and then in the city with an orchestra. (laughs) That's a a very different viewing experience. That's just kind of like what they do at the Hollywood Bowl with John Williams or whoever else. I Uh, mean, since I have to bring up La La Land every single episode, I (laughs) did... The first thing I ever saw at the Hollywood Bowl was La La Land Live. Mm -hmm. And what that was, was they had live singers and they played the movie in the background, but a live orchestra. And it's so trippy because they're so good that you can't really tell it's not just coming from speakers, except that you can see people actually playing the instruments. And it's just like, oh, it's a really magical experience. Yeah. And that's that's one of the classic events they do at the Hollywood Bowl. 
Uh, many mm-hmm. times a year in non-pandemic times is uh, screening yes. a film and then having the orchestra play along to it. I've been to a John Williams concert there where they did it with the movies. I've been to Jurassic Park. So awesome. Nowadays, unless you're lucky enough to uh, work for the Hollywood Philharmonic, it's kind of hard to get a job uh, playing music along with a movie. Mm-hmm. These days, oh, you know, yeah. it's hard to get a musician job. And actually, because of that, in this era, movies, that was actually the highest uh, employer of musicians in the country for quite some time. So, so many musicians, they were just making their career out of playing to the movies. I wonder if the cost was more in order to, like, supply... You know, wages for the I believe it was in the fancier theaters. Yeah. I mean, we'll have to be there in general, but I just wonder, like, if the price of a ticket, mm-hmm. like, you know, adjusted for inflama- inflammation, adjusted for inflation. <laughs> I would say the economy has become inflamed at certain points. Oh, yes. I just am so focused on inflammation in my body. It just, just permeates my vocabulary. But speaking of inflammation... <laughs> What do you think happened uh, when the economy became inflamed uh, about 10 years after this? Because what do you think happened about 10 years after this? Oh, I think it all crashed. It was the Great Depression. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It halted everything. Everything kind of stopped. So what do you think that did to musicians? Oh, I think it set them right out on the streets. Poor, poor people. I I personally think that that was probably one of the factors that made being a musician a job that was not as encouraged to many people. Yeah. That's a lot of jobs to no longer have available. I mean, back then there were 21,000 movie theaters in the U.S. by around uh, 1916. Wow. Just think about how many musicians you would have needed for that many movies. I mean, even if you're only just having one at each theater, which obviously there was more than one Mm -hmm. and a lot, then yeah, that's a lot of musicians. This era, the silent film era, some of the biggest things that happened where it was the time of the birth of the movie star. Mm -hmm. It was the rise of the studio system. And it was also the time when uh, Hollywood movies gained global influence uh, in order to lay the foundation for so much later cinema. So this is an era that not many people like to think about. Not many people like to watch the movies of this era. Historically, it was so, so important. Yeah, Had to happen in order to build to a... Bigger and brighter and more commercially successful future. This was when movies became a cultural universal to a degree. So, Kelsey, have you heard of Nickelodeons? Uh, Yeah, the the little short films that you could... Weren't they called Nickelodeons because they, like, cost a nickel to go see? Mm -hmm. Yes, it was because they cost a nickel. People didn't have access to a lot of luxuries back then, but they at least had something that could be accessible to people of all different financial backgrounds. Nickelodeons were something that even people without a lot of money could go to. Yes, so Nickelodeons were uh, little cheap movies that people would get to see in little cheap movie theaters, not super Mm -hmm. fancy, usually little storefront places. And usually they would show a program of lots of different shorts of different types. Um, Often there were comedies in there, things that would appeal to the masses. 
the Nickelodeons were usually more targeted at the working class. Mm -hmm. And during this time, film was often kind of seen more as like a working class sort of activity. Mm -hmm. A lot of the rich folks more preferred theater or opera, you know, places where they could see and be seen, you know, the society events. Yes, yes, indeed. Where you you put on your pearls and your little (laughs) binoculars and your white gloves, all that. High class. And so what really started to shape the film industry from, you know, being more like, 10-minute shorts and cheap theaters was when rich people started coming to the movies. But I don't think they were going to Nickelodeons. They were not going to Nickelodeons. They were going to what was often referred to as the Dream Palace, which were rich, luxurious movie theaters. Kelsey, I'm sure that at some point you've probably been to some beautiful old theaters in LA. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's hard not to. Like, sometimes you don't even necessarily realize that the theater you're even going to see a movie in or whatever production it is, is this old classic ornate decor just everywhere. Like, I I mean, I went to see Jim Gaffigan Mm -hmm. at the Ace Hotel and I was thinking... Well, a hotel with a theater attached, it's probably not that fancy. And I was like, oh, whoa. Yeah, you just feel like you're transported into a completely different time when you're in there. Yeah, when you think about fancy theaters in L.A., like the Pantages, Mm -hmm. the El Capitan, the Chinese theater, like how beautiful and ornate they are on the Mm -hmm. inside, it makes you feel like you're having an elevated experience. You don't feel like, you know, you're just doing a, a cheap little working man's activity. And so as they started uh, building all these rich, luxurious Dream Palace movie theaters, uh, rich people started coming to the movies. And they were like, no, I do not want to see silly little video. I want something quality, (laughs) refined, more like a play. (laughs) And so movies became more like plays. That was when... Movies started to, you know, have the more refined narratives and move more towards feature films. Okay, that makes sense. Another factor was these fancy theaters, they wanted to charge the premium prices. Yeah. And so in order to justify the premium prices, they didn't want to just be playing all these shorts on a loop all day. They wanted to have a program that was closer in length to seeing a play or an opera or something like that, Mm. where there was a more designated showtime. And so that really sparked the demand for feature films. And the demand for feature films was what really sparked the rise of the studio system. Ah, In order to meet that demand. That makes sense. That was why the studio system pretty much dominated movies from roughly the 20s to the 50s. Yeah, blame rich people. (laughs) And their refined tastes. We never do that on this podcast. How dare you? (laughs) How dare you? No, I, I do think that's super interesting that... Because wealthy people demanded a luxe experience with a longer plot Mm -hmm. and a more like well thought out storyline, that that's why the studio system started pumping out this same formula again and again and again and again. Like -hmm. it just turned them into long Nickelodeons in the end, which is kind of funny. It actually reminds me of how today people are moving away from like the network TV format Mm -hmm. because they want more premium television, like what they see in streaming or cable. 
And you're like, no, I don't want to deal with all the ads. <laughs> I want to be able to hear curse words and see boobs. <laughs> curse words <laughs> and boobs, that's entertainment to me. I'm refined. <laughs> and so meanwhile, while all of this is happening here, silent filmmaking is popping in other countries. <laughs> it's popping. So in my opinion... A lot of the really great art of this period was not actually happening in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. What happened was people were being really innovative in other countries, mm -hmm. and then Hollywood copied them. What? Hollywood. And so um, some of the main movements that were very influential on Hollywood <laughs> in that time were the French avant-garde and Impressionism. Mm -hmm. The German Expressionist, which was hugely, hugely influential on like the Universal Monsters movies oh, and yeah. a lot of the horror genre. And then the Soviet Montage, which I watched some of those short films. Um, yeah, they definitely copied a lot <laughs> of the style of that. Soviet Montage, the Soviet Montage movement influenced a lot of uh, camera movements that are still really? very relevant today, uh, point of views that are relevant mm -hmm. today. There's a scene that's in um, one of these uh, Soviet Montage era films that's um, one of the first scenes ever in cinema where there is a disaster happening on screen, but we're seeing it from the vantage point of just one character. Oh. All of these were incredibly influential movements on Hollywood. And actually, I was very surprised by this. Documentary filmmaking became very influential as well. Oh. There was a lot of documentary filmmaking happening in Europe at that time. One of the films in Europe was the first to do a flashback, like oh. just... They were super influential. And then over here in Hollywood, they're like, let's make money. Let's copy them. <laughs> let's mass in produce America, our films. United States. <laughs> and so um, got to work uh, mass producing films for a large mass audience. In this time, some of the most popular genres were Westerns, mm -hmm. which we see a lot of from this time period, romantic comedies. Ah. Which I was kind of surprised by. <laughs> when I think about it, it kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. In my old filmmaker brain, they're like, let's give something for the men to laugh mm -hmm. at and the women to woo over. Now we've got all our audience. Yes. <laughs> Very much so. And then uh, gangster type movies. Ah. Yeah. And then slapstick comedy. Oh, yes. Which I think are the most fun to watch because then the wackiness mm -hmm. seems to go along with it. Like it seems to work mm -hmm. <laughs> somehow. Yes, exactly. And that's part of why, in my opinion, the slapstick comedy of this era is the most accessible yeah. genre yeah. of this era. For sure. I mean, watching some of some of the slapstick comedy of this era, I genuinely laughed. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to get me to genuinely laugh when I watch stuff. <laughs> so to promote the movies, the studios decided to follow the lead of the theater industry and started focusing on stars mm. and star making. So during this time, a lot of the theaters, as in live theater, live mm -hmm. performances, they tried to do a lot of star casting. They would um, promote their plays by saying, so-and-so is starring in it. You all know who she is. You love her. Yeah. That kind of thing. And so studios tried to do that too for the purpose of selling tickets. And so um, 
that was how a lot of the big movie stars uh, started coming to be was it was all about the money. Well, yeah. We already mentioned a very groundbreaking film in our start of Hollywood episode. Yes. And that was 1915's Birth of a Nation. A very racist film glorifying the Klan. Yeah. Real. Yeah, the KKK. I am in no way endorsing it as a favorite film. (laughs) I don't recommend watching it, but it was very groundbreaking. There was a lot that they did that ended up influencing a lot of later filmmaking. One thing that I'm very glad did not become normalized from that film was the length. Oh. Do you know how long that movie was, Kelsey? No, I don't. Three and a half hours. Oh, my God. Back then? Back then. How could you even fit all those reels in, like, a projection booth? I don't even know how they did it. I don't know. They had been doing all these Nickelodeons, and then here D.W. Griffith comes with a three and a half hour long film. Oh, three and a half hour hour-long garbage film, like, (laughs) content-wise. Like, (laughs) I want everybody to know how terrible. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, he was was real full of himself. And, I mean, the thing that's so sad, too, is that it did so well. Everybody thought it was a masterpiece. But back then, a lot of people, a lot of white people, thought it was a masterpiece of Mm -hmm. both story and cinema breakthrough we can recognize the cinema breakthrough and condemn all of the story because <laughs> it's horrible. Mm-hmm. It actually was the highest grossing film of the silent film era. Yeah, I knew that. Ugh. We, mm-hmm. we, we're not giving this a recommendation for anybody to watch. We're not. We're just acknowledging that <laughs> yeah. it existed and it was historically significant. Yes, indeed. And also Griffith did something kind of interesting. He uh, wrote a musical score for the film that was required to be played wherever the film was shown so that everybody would uh, have to have the same music. <laughs> That's not shocking to me for someone who's made their three and a half hour, their <laughs> masterpiece, like is requiring mm-hmm. the same. That sounds exactly like what a filmmaker would do. Mm-hmm. It's so normal now, but in yeah. that context, I can see him being like, no, you must. Exactly. You must play my music. (laughs) If I don't hear a crescendo at the fifth climax of my three-hour feature, I will sue you. But anyway, so with Birth of a Nation, it was obvious now that feature films could do well. Yeah. It's the rise of the studio system. People need to keep making these feature films. So studios became a one-stop shop. Everything was done there. They would conceive the film there. They'd write it there. They'd produce it there. They'd shoot it there. Everybody who'd work on it would be an employee of the studio. They would market it there. And then they would distribute it. It was a full monopoly. Wow. Very, very corporate. And, you know, when you were signed to the studio, that was it. You signed away your life. Pretty much. I'm sure you've heard about how much control they had. Oh, yeah. It is horrible. Like, they... Particularly for female actors, actresses, like they controlled every single item of food or drink or cigarette went into your body. Mm -hmm. The studio would control personal lives, approving marriages, telling people they couldn't have children, all kinds of things. And this was before the Screen Actors Guild. Oh, yeah. So people were working crazy hours. Uh, People were given drugs, uppers and downers. Yep. It was all kinds of craziness back then. 
I'm very glad I don't live during those times. <laughs> yeah, me too. I might not consider acting as seriously <laughs> if that mm-hmm. was the case. But not even counting the health aspects, the studios also had all the power creatively. Studios would have a lot of control over which stories were told. They would have to approve scripts, cast, all kinds of things. So, you know, when you're too tightly controlled, that's very frustrating for an artist. Definitely. A lot of the artists were, you know, starting to get a little annoyed. They wanted to make their art the way that they wanted to. They started to get a little bit antsy, and some of them actually broke off and formed their own studio. They formed uh, United Artists in 1919 that was formed with uh, Charlie Chaplin, D.W. Griffith, remember him? Oh, that guy. And uh, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. So they joined forces to create United Artists, which was a studio made up of the artists where they had their creative control and they got a bigger share of the profits. So cha-ching, cha-ching. Yeah, I mean, it all comes down to money in the end. But at the same time, I do at least respect them wanting to have control over their artistic visions. You know, mm-hmm. it's really hard. That's what independent filmmaking is pretty much about. So you're not yes. under control. Now, this is one thing that independent filmmaking often requires these days. Mm-hmm. You got to have money already. Yeah, you do. The reason that these artists got to form their own studio was they were already successful. Yeah. They already had money. They already had influence. The average filmmaker or actor couldn't afford to go out on their own. So they were stuck in the studio system. Yeah. They had no other choice in order to work because they signed insane contracts, too. Mm-hmm. It's not like you could just like be like, I quit. Like, nope, sorry. We own you. <laughs> yeah. You had to do what the studio said or you'd have no career. Yeah. And at the time, everything was so mass appeal and so commercial that, you know, if you want to do something that was a little weird or a little bit different, the studio would be like, no. And so in 1924, the big cheese emerged, the big, big studio of that <laughs> era. Lowe's, mm-hmm. not the store, was <laughs> the studio. They bought Goldwyn Pictures and Louis B. Mayer Productions. So they're all together, and we get Metro Goldwyn Mayer, ah, MGM, MGM. Rar, <laughs> Rar, Rar. It's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> so this kind of thing kept happening, you know, studios uh, selling, merging, doing name changes, splitting up. So there are a lot of studios that uh, are kind of interchangeable during this period. So yeah. It can get a little confusing when you hear the names of all the different studios. Uh, But during this time, Warner Brothers, Fox, and Columbia emerged. But the person who really, really shaped what the studio system was going to be was a guy named Thomas H. Ince. Have you ever heard of him? I don't think so. So this guy, oh man, such a creative person. We have him to thank for the positions of producer, screenwriter, assistant director. Basically, he invented every position you could ever have on a movie set. Wow. What was going on was in early filmmaking, usually the director kind of did everything. Mm -hmm. The director usually operated the camera and wrote the script and worked with the actors. It was a very singular job. 
And so what Ince decided to do was split everything up. He was like, okay, we'll be able to make more movies if a different person does each of these jobs and we just do everything faster and then move on to the next movie. So he kind of created an assembly line. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so he separated the jobs of writer, director, producer, editor, etc. So he just really streamlined operations, and much of that is still in practice today. And he started his own little studio that was called Inceville, <laughs> which was in Santa Inez Canyon, and it had the first standing set back lot. Oh. It had a lot of Western backlot kind of sets. That's cool. It was the first mini, mini little example of the studio system. And he is also considered the father of Westerns because oh. a lot of what he worked on were Westerns. And like most creatives, he started out as a failed actor. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the big stereotype with so many directors and writers and everyone. Yeah. They moved to town to be an actor. Yep. And agents and managers and like and casting directors sometimes. Too. And casting directors. Yeah. And people who work in market research for film and television. Yep. Yep. It's all it's all there. You just kind of slide into something else. <laughs> mm -hmm. So here's our first little scandal of the period. Ooh. Scandal. So Ince was at the height of his career. Mm -hmm. He was doing so, so well. Everybody was copying him with the way he was making his films. Ince goes on a yacht that oh. belongs to William Randolph Hearst. Oh, oh, so we're up in the scandal. And We've got a yacht. I mean, most scandals happen <laughs> on yachts. We just mm -hmm. let's all just be honest with ourselves. How many scandals have you heard about on a yacht? More than not. I guess what happens on the water stays on the water. Not. Always. <laughs> Not always. <laughs> Ince goes on Hearst's yacht. No Hearst. He's at the height of his career. He's an honored guest. And then it's reported that he fell ill oh. on the yacht. Oh. And he died. What? <laughs> That's not and, seasickness. And so when they come back, the cause of death was deemed heart failure. Okay. He was a young, healthy dude. Yeah. At the height of his career. Yeah. And Hearst? Hearst just hated him for it. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But He had enough power that, like, yeah, he could cover something up like that real easy, I yeah. bet. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. There were a lot of hushed whispers about what might have happened, but it, the case has never been solved. Wow. What did kill Thomas Ince? Or, you know, it could have just been like a steady diet of red meat and staying out <laughs> in the sun all day. Who knows? I mean, like, <laughs> it's not like there was a lot of really established health routines back in that time. Mm -hmm. In fact, didn't they think? I don't know. For all we know, he had cancer. Yeah. He just, you know, well, yeah, everybody was smoking like there was no tomorrow. Like that was yeah. that was healthy back then. And so was being tanned by the sun. And, you know. But I I kind of like the thought. Well, I shouldn't say I like it because I don't want people <laughs> to get killed. But <laughs> it's more interesting I, if it's a scandal and a murder. I, it's more interesting if someone killed him on Hearst's yacht. And Hearst totally could have covered it up. But Ince had lasting influence. Now, life was a little bit rough for a lot of people during this time. And when life is rough, what genre do you enjoy? 
I mean, I would say comedy. Yes, that's what I would say too. This was considered one of the golden ages of comedy because comedy became um, one of the most accessible genres of the era. Yeah. Most people like comedy. It's rare to find a person who doesn't like humor. (laughs) And so people of all classes uh, grew to really, really love comedy. And so a lot of the comedy of this era uh, actually started through a guy named Mac Sennett. Have you ever heard of him? No, I don't think so. So he was a multi-hyphenate. He was an actor, a director, all kinds of things. And one of the things he was best known for was discovering stars. He kickstarted the careers of a lot of uh, great comedic actors. People called him the king of comedy. Oh. And he founded the first studio in Hollywood that was really, really focused on comedy. It was called Keystone Studios. People called it the Hollywood Fun Factory, (laughs) which just sounds delightful. And it was home to uh, many of the slapstick comedies of the era. And that launched the careers of the Keystone Cops, W.C. Fields, Mm. Fatty Arbuckle, Mm -hmm. Charlie Chaplin, Gloria Swanson, and Carol Lombard. So a a lot of recognizable names there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, a lot. Of, I like that there are some women in there too. Yeah, I know. Women can be funny. <laughs> hey, if people could think women could be funny back then, like you have no excuse to have any problems now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Now, unfortunately, uh, Senate did not do uh, well when it came to sound movies. I guess he was just mm. better suited to the silent films. He uh, was bankrupted in 1933. Oh dear. Yeah, he was the king of comedy, and then bankruptcy happened. (laughs) But many of his stars became very, very successful. Right, so you said Charlie Chaplin was there, so this is obviously before he went off and started United Artists with everybody. Yeah, this was before United Artists. Okay. And not very long before. But uh, Chaplin, Harry Lloyd, Fatty Arbuckle, and Buster Keaton, they all ended up um, making their own comedic films. Oh, nice. Yeah. Getting more into the multi-hyphenate kind of era, which I really like because you don't really think of that as being an era when people were multi-hyphenates, writing, directing, right. and acting. But a lot of people were. So I would love to um, highlight a couple of his performers. Okay. The first I would love to highlight is Fatty Arbuckle. Mm-hmm. What a mean name. <laughs> I don't like that. Well... You know, I mean, that's the thing is I don't think fat necessarily has to be an insult. I think people have made it an insult. And there's a lot of more Mm -hmm. reclamation of the word fat again, because it is just a descriptor. But if you think fat people are bad, but we have existed in this kind of 80s, 90s thing of fat being an insult. So it does sound really, really mean now. But if he gave Mm -hmm. himself that and that's his own branding or did he not? There's a lot of. A lot of people who think he did not give himself that name. Oh. And there's a lot of um, reporting during the period that he was very insecure about his weight. Oh. And that he really, really hated being called fatty. Oh. And that when oh, people saw him in public, he said to them, I have a first name, you know. His first name was actually Roscoe. Yeah. And apparently he he really did not like being the more rotund man but that was where a lot of his comedy came from apparently he became like really passionate about physical comedy because he knew that people enjoyed it and he was quite agile 
But apparently he really, really wanted the comedy to be about more than like him getting stuck in doors and like well, not being able to get out of the chair and stuff. I feel bad for him. I mean, that does suck because, well, the reason why people think it's funny is because they think of fat people being lesser. You know, it's okay mm-hmm. to laugh at somebody because obviously it's their fault that they're fat. It's not just that people are built differently. Yeah. So so there was very much already a culture of fat shaming in oh, Hollywood yeah. in this time, even with the men. He he had he had some rough stuff. He he made a lot of money, but mm-hmm. he he had trouble with his marriages. He was addicted to morphine Ooh. also. After he he got this infection in his leg mm-hmm. and he got prescribed a shit ton of morphine. Yeah. And then everyone was addicted to morphine in these days. It's fascinating. Well, opium dens and all sorts mm-hmm. of things. But we'll get back to more with him a little bit later. Charlie Chaplin is probably the person that's most remembered from this era. And I actually asked you to watch some of his work. What did you watch? So I watched a scene, a really famous scene, where he gets Mm -hmm. stuck in the gears as he's like, he's working on an assembly line with a bunch of people, like a really strong man, and he's not Mm -hmm. keeping up with it. And so he eventually dives into the assembly line (laughs) and then gets caught in these giant gears, which I really want to know how they physically did that or the effects behind it, because it's very advanced for its time. Mm -hmm. And I could kind of tell just because I know film and I can see look out for these kinds of things that one part of the effects was doing the film in reverse, which I didn't know that they could do that back then or like knew how to do that or how how they would record that on the reels or the mechanics behind it. I I personally think he's the most accessible of all the silent yeah. film performers. Like you'll you'll genuinely laugh, I feel yeah. like, if you watch a lot of uh, Charlie Chaplin's work. I think that he would have been a Groundlings main oh, company member totally, today. Totally. Or like on SNL or yeah, something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Charlie Chaplin was actually born in England and grew up very poor. Oh really? And so because of that, um, he often had some sort of working class theme yeah. in a lot of his films. You probably noticed yeah. that in a lot of it. He always identified with the working class. And when he created his tramp character, the mm-hmm. character that he's really well known for with the little cane, that character just fit really well into that lower class, working class world. Mm-hmm. And so he would come up with these different clever stories with lots of physical comedy, and he would direct these films. And Fatty Arbuckle was his mentor. Oh, that's sweet. That That is sweet. They were very good friends. Yeah, I knew that. I knew that they were buddies, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know a ton about Fatty Arbuckle or his career. Yeah, I I think that they they were two very, very fascinating uh, comedic actors and both made a lot of money. Yeah. Chaplin, by the uh, mid-teens, by 1915, he was making $10,000 per week. Oh, wow. And had a signing bonus of $150,000 when he signed with Mutual Films Corporation. And this was in 1915. And he quickly became an international star. Yeah, very recognizable. I highly recommend uh, checking out some of Chaplin's work. And uh, his studios... 
uh, over on Highland Avenue. Mm-hmm. Currently, it is the uh, Jim Henson Studios. Oh, really? I didn't know that. And then, of course, if you want to see um, some more uh, slapstick comedy of that era, Harold Lloyd had a lot of great work, as did uh, Laurel and Hardy. And uh, Buster Keaton ended up being more the like deadpan straight man kind of uh, comedy <laughs> during that time. All very worth checking out uh, if yeah. you want to look them up on YouTube. During that time, some other genres became very accessible to the public and some of them still really hold up today. I recommend uh, checking out some of the silent horror of that Ooh. era, particularly uh, 1925's The Phantom of the Opera. That was oh, one yeah. of the first um, horror films yeah. made in Hollywood. And it was very, very influenced by German expressionism. Ooh, that's not surprising. With like the exaggerated and distorted style. Mm. With uh, yeah. costumes and sets and everything. I also highly recommend checking out in the science fiction genre, 1927's Metropolis. Have you ever heard of that one? No, I haven't. Oh my goodness. If you watch even just a few clips of Metropolis, you will see just how influential it was on the entire science fiction genre. Pretty much every science fiction film ever made was somehow influenced by Metropolis, either directly or indirectly. Very beautiful film. It was directed uh, by Fritz Long, who was also a German expressionist, hence me <laughs> saying earlier we copied a lot of other styles. Yeah. Particularly the robot character in it. Mm. Every android character ever in science fiction is basically a copy of the Ooh. of the robot from Metropolis, including C-3PO. I just looked up. Like, I just Googled it to look it up later, and it's eerie. I do not like this robot face at all. <laughs> but you hey. see the influence, definitely, Yeah, right? it kind of looks like a mix of, like, uh, C-3PO and, like, King Tut's sarcophagus. Like, if you mix those faces together, but the eyes mm-hmm. are the creepiest part of it. And I, I'm already creeped out by it. And you don't think of like old movies being that scary because our Mm -hmm. barometer for horror has changed so much over the years. Yeah. I don't like this at all. (laughs) But it's definitely worth checking out because it's not what you would think of for a film of the era. No, no. But there was also a rise of animated shorts during this era, including shorts that were a combination of live action with animation And some were far more advanced than you would expect. And one I particularly recommend checking out. It's from 1914. It's by Windsor McKay, and it's called Gertie the Dinosaur. And it is the cutest thing in the world. Oh. I highly, highly recommend checking it out. Too, too adorable. Gertie is a brontosaurus. (laughs) So now that we've seen cute, innocent animated stuff, now let's talk about (laughs) Scandal. More scandal, I'll get my tea ready. dark side of Hollywood, your tea. Let's spill the tea. So, as films are becoming very widespread, people started worrying that movies were encouraging sin. Because in (laughs) movies, there would be materialism, immorality, alcohol use, (sighs) and sex. Oh, not sex. Nobody has sex. Nobody does. They sleep in twin beds and children get delivered by a stork, damn it. That, 
<laughs> How dare you? How dare you imply that so, humans... This is something that's been going on forever. People have oh, yeah. always been worrying since the beginning of films uh, whether media is encouraging people to be immoral or is the media holding a mirror to society and we, in fact, are the immoral ones. Oh. oh. I mean, basically, religion and people have been doing this to themselves since the dawn of time. Forever. Pictures, you know. books, you know. Yeah. Witch trials. Like, oh, you looked at me funny and you died. Yes. And so people worried not only about the morality of the content, but also the morality of the stars. And so people were dying to know all the gossip about the celebrities. But, you know, when they heard about things like affairs, corruption, crime, addiction, illegitimate children, Mm -hmm. all these things, they'd be like, that's not who I want my children watching on a big screen. They don't represent my high moral ground. Now excuse me while I give my baby a cigarette. Yes, exactly. The next six minutes of this podcast involve discussion of sexual assault. If you wish to skip the discussion of this topic, please skip ahead six minutes. People were always on the lookout for scandal. It felt like there was suddenly a big, big fascination with celebrity culture. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest cases was against our good friend fatty arbuckle if you look up a picture of fatty arbuckle he has like the most innocent face in the world i'm not saying he was innocent but i'm just saying he had a very cherubic look he he did not look like a bad guy so people just always kind of assumed he was this nice innocent dude yeah who was you know a good role model and all these things just maybe overindulged a little bit too much with the sweets In 1921, Fatty Arbuckle is at the height of his career. He's one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, and he was accused of raping and causing the death of a young actress named Virginia Rappé. Oh, wait, I do remember this. I think they covered it on My Favorite Murder, actually. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's been covered in in many, many uh, different uh, forms of media. So- and I've, I've read several books about this topic also. Really? So, oh, my God. Well, not the main topic of the book, but it's been covered in several Hollywood books that I've read. Yeah. So Fatty and um, some friends went to San Francisco. They decided to have a party at a hotel. Fatty and another mm-hmm. friend were sharing one hotel room. Their third friend was in another hotel room. And they reserved a third room to be the party room. And they decided to invite some women to their little party. And so Virginia joined them at the party. Now, Virginia had a bunch of pre-existing health conditions Mm. that were exacerbated by alcohol. Okay. But Virginia decided to drink when she was at the party. Everyone is drinking. Now, what happened next, no one is entirely sure of because there are conflicting witness arguments, but according to some, uh, Virginia became ill, uh, went to another room and started to rest, and then later on some folks came in and tried to help her out, um, gave her some ice for abdominal distress, um, others other reports that they might have put her in a bathtub with ice, things like that, 
Mm-hmm. One thing we know for sure is that the hotel doctor was called. Mm-hmm. The doctor examined her, said, oh, she's just drunk, and left her alone after that. But what we do know also is a couple days later, she was in the hospital, and a couple days later, she died. Jeez. Now, she died in the hospital of a peritonitis, which is oh. inflammation of the intestinal wall from a ruptured bladder. Oh. So her bladder was ruptured. Now, oh, geez. no one is entirely certain how her bladder was ruptured. When she was at the hospital, she never once said anything about being abused or raped. She never even mentioned Fatty Arbuckle when she was in the hospital. But when Virginia was in the hospital, her friend said that this happened, her bladder was ruptured because she was raped by Fatty. God. And so from there, the story just kind of started growing, Mm -hmm. but no one is entirely certain what exactly happened. Now, the trial was a huge media circus. All of these um, different news outlets came and covered it. And um, friends such as Charlie Chaplin severely defended Fatty Arbuckle. Charlie Chaplin was like, he would never do anything like that. But the argument was that his weight caused her bladder to rupture. All right. Well, a few things. It's very likely that she could have been raped by him and only confided in her friend. I think a doctor wouldn't necessarily pick up on these things because doctors and people in general didn't tend to listen to women back then. Still don't a lot of times. My point is that even if she had pre-existing conditions, doctors weren't treating women and still don't to this day the same that they treat men. Like they still don't listen. So they mm-hmm. she may not even known, but that is really disappointing all around, no matter what the actual what actually happened, a girl still died. Mm-hmm. And so there was a huge, huge media circus. There actually ended up being three trials. Wow. And so over and over again, people kept saying that there just wasn't enough evidence to convict him, that there was evidence on both sides. Like it was just very, very hard for any jury to come to a decision. So he yeah. was acquitted. Yeah. However, he was canceled like crazy. Oh, His yeah. career was essentially over. This was pretty much the first time someone's been canceled in Hollywood. Yeah. Industry basically completely severed ties with him. He ended up uh, working very, very little after that. And he ended up uh, directing. He came into directing more later on, but he did it under a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. And then... At 46, he died in his sleep of a heart attack right after signing a deal to act in a feature film with Warner Brothers. Some report it was the same day. Wow. But there's speculation all around. Who knows what actually happened? But that was one of the first big Hollywood scandals. And it was one of the main reasons that Hollywood decided, all right, we got to do something about morality. Ah. And so it was either let the government control us or we'll control ourselves. 
And so, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America was formed, or the Ah. MPPDA, which is Hollywood cracking down on themselves. And they hired a man who has become quite infamous in Hollywood history named Will Hayes. Oh. Ever heard of the Hayes Code? Yes, I have heard of the Hayes Code, but I haven't mm. I haven't made that connection to an actual person. They got the perfect person for this job. They got a conservative evangelical Christian who was a former <laughs> postmaster general. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did he also later go on to being part of Trump's cabinet? <laughs> <laughs> so he puts together this code the motion picture production code also known as the Hayes code it's a list of all the things films can't show so um basically people get more restricted now because we have to be moral and so a lot mm. of studios had new morality clauses too for a lot of their actors which yeah. uh, you know cost things like abortions when uh, women were going to have children outside of marriage, things like that. Yeah. So, Well, and that, like, that's so fucked up about, like, all everything surrounding that because it's, like, only when it, like, we decide it's moral when it applies to our money, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it's, oh, God. But a lot of filmmakers found ways around it. Oh, of course. And I, I mean... Art always finds a way and sometimes <laughs> restrictions make it make you be more creative. I'm not saying mm-hmm. I want restrictions on art. I'm just saying I know that when you can't curse or you can't do certain things on a production, you have to find more creative ways to express what you're feeling and imply the same kind of but dancing around that kind of regulation and restriction as well standards and practices exactly and so uh one thing a lot of people did was they just put all the immoral stuff at the beginning of the movie like (laughs) for most of it like 75 percent of the movie because as long as virtue wins in the end it was okay (laughs) so cecil b demille did that a lot (laughs) that's funny you'd have all his scandalous stuff and then yeah. Virtue wins. It's their their Deus Ex Machina of of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this other filmmaker, Ernst Lubitsch, he became quite famous for being raunchy. He did a lot mm. of raunchy sex comedies that used innuendo instead of skin. Oh, the sexy stuff got a lot more creative. However, the big shakeup was about to come when movies started to talk. The first feature-length talkie, The Jazz Singer, in 1927, which we'll explore in another episode. Yeah. Oh, can't wait till we get to the talkies. Mm Mm-hmm. The talkies. Do I have to spend a dime instead of a nickel now, sir? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's quite, quite a journey through the silent film era. I'm definitely intrigued by this yacht scandal, and I'd like to learn more about the, the father of film production roles, and I'd never heard of him. I don't think I'd ever heard of mm-hmm. that guy. Yeah, I really feel like Ince doesn't get as much credit as he probably should. Like, I, I yeah. had never heard of him either until I did research on this episode. Wow. Well, that's great. And I'm definitely going to look up Metropolis, even though it's really creeping me out. Like, <laughs> I don't don't like that robot face at all. 
we'll make sure to include it on our Instagram slide so you can be equally <laughs> creeped out by yes. <laughs> what we're talking about so you can follow yes. along. So listeners, I hope that this has uh, made you feel a little bit better versed in Hollywood history and that it's uh, made you want to learn a little bit more about the history of Los Angeles. Just a reminder, the content of this podcast is based on our own opinions and personal experiences and may not reflect the opinions and experiences of all Angelinos. Music by Leo Jackson. Artwork by Trevor D. Richardson. Additional research by Natalia Raymond and edited by me, Kelsey Ryder. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Angelinos in Training and on Twitter at Angelinos Pod. Want us to cover a specific topic about LA? Email us at Angelinos in Training at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>